You're listening to Michael and Israel. In context. (laughs) I'm your host, Hannah Seymour. And as you know, we are on a journey through Israel on In Context. This is our fourth and final week. Where are you taking us today, Dad? Well, today we're going to go in the old city. We're in Jerusalem. And we're going to... uh, cram our group <laughs> into a about a 40-minute walk underground. Yeah. It's always interesting how people respond to this. And at one place, it's 23 inches narrow yep. and a little less than four feet tall. Itty bitty living space. There's no lights. It's completely dark. So we, uh, we pre-equip our group with headlamps, little flashlights, and we tell them, bring your wet shoes and your shorts, and you're going to have the time of your life, and you got to do it, because more than likely, you're not going to come back to Israel, but maybe once or twice. And so we make our folks go. It, it's fun, because think of Israel as a bunch of state parks. Hmm. So you're going to these state parks, and you go to the old city of David, and we can say, this is one of those places, Hannah, we can say, for sure, David lived. Absolutely. We know this is his house. Yeah. And just in the years I've been going, the excavation's continuing. I remember many years ago, the docent taking me down kind of like, uh, let me show you something special. Hmm. And they had uncovered some steps. And I didn't understand the full impact of this, but he was explaining these steps would have been the lowest part of David's house that would have gone down into the pools of Siloam. So fast forward, and now you go there and the whole thing's excavated. Wow. So the whole width of David's house, I remember seeing those steps when it was probably no more than 20 feet exposed, and now I'm going to guess it goes 150, 200 feet across where it's all excavated. You can stand up inside there and walk down there. But we take our group in there, and we send them into what's called the wet walk. And depending on the time of year, the water is usually ankle deep. Some, up to my waist. Well, it, it starts ankle. <laughs> oh, yes. And then it gets up to about your thigh or waist, depending uh-huh. on how tall you are. And then it goes down. Most of the time, you're not that deep. Right. And it's a little chilly. It's freezing. It's a little chilly. <laughs> yeah. You cry a little <laughs> and, at the and, beginning. In the summer, you love it. In the spring, it's a little chilly. Um, but the significance of this spring goes back to Hezekiah's time, conservatively 700 years B.C., before Jesus is born, and the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is a guy who's coming in and threatening the Jew. Mm-hmm. And so Hezekiah, the king of Judah, undertakes this incredible building project going through complete rock to move a spring from point A to point B. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, this is also one of my very favorite sites, and the Hezekiah's Tunnel is so fun, and you will tell us a lot more about that in just a moment. But the other piece that I love is at the end of that walk, we end up at the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus heals a blind man. And of course, that story is so powerful. But for me, that's where you on your tour always end up sharing your testimony. And so to hear you share how Christ changed your life. I remember the first time going to Israel with you, just having this profound thought of my life, my legacy was changed at the moment that Christ saved my dad. Mm. Mm. And such a powerful, of course, just personal story, but to be sitting in the place where we know that Christ completely healed a blind man since birth, and he does that for us spiritually to this day. We are blind, we cannot see, and we need a supernatural work to give us a new set of eyes. Yeah. Well, let's head to Hezekiah's Tunnel and Pool of Siloam. 
One of the fascinating things about traveling to Israel is you can be in one spot where things happened clear back at the time of the kings and also at the time of Jesus. It's striking to think about this area, again, about the size of the state of Connecticut. And some four to 6,000 years of biblical history occurs in these areas. Well, if we go back to the story in 2 Kings of a man named Hezekiah, he builds a tunnel. Let me read 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Judah? This is called the Pools of Siloam. We get a little more information about it from 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Now, a little bit of Israel's history. Assyria was one of Israel's many enemies. And during a number of campaigns, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, would come in and invade Judah. And eventually, of course, the Assyrians take the Jews into captivity. And by the way, when you go to London, you need to go to the British Museum of Natural History and go see the Sennacherib tablets. Because these are the Assyrian tablets that were carved in stone that retell the story of Sennacherib going into Israel and taking the Jews captive back into Assyria. And it's all carved. So it's history from the Assyrian story of what they did to Judah. Well, listen to how it's recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. After these acts of faithfulness, King Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled, and they stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it. And he built another wall on the outside and strengthened the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. What happens is Hezekiah builds a tunnel from outside the city wall go inside the city that is what's called the city of David to this day. Now, if you look at a map of Jerusalem and you held your fingers like you have an ice cream cone, Dr. Charlie Dyer taught me this little illustration, have an ice cream cone with the V pointed down, and then on either side of the ice cream cone, you take a hamburger bun and stick it on either side. At the base of the ice cream cone, that V, that valley area would be the city of David down toward the bottom of the cone. The water is brought in from outside the city wall, let's say near the hamburger bun on the right, and the water then is carved into the rock, dug into the rock, to bring it into the areas called the pools of Siloam. So in other words, Hezekiah knows the snack rib's going to come and attack us. This is about 700 years before Jesus is born. He sends the water, the Gihon Springs, into the city. Nehemiah chapter 3 also records this wall of the pool of Shelah and how King David built his gardens in this area. In Luke chapter 13, verse 4, we mention of the Tower of Siloam. So many times we have this same area all the way back Hezekiah's time, and we're going to fast forward to Jesus' time in John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. Now this story occurs at the pool of Siloam. 
John 9, as he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Take note, congenital blindness, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, let me give you just a little running commentary here. There was a theory that a baby could sin in utero. So when they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. So some rabbis believe you could actually sin when you were a fetus in your mother's womb. The other implication was, did his parents sin, and this was a consequence of their behavior? And Jesus, of course, says neither. It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we've got this tee-up, congenitally blind man. The disciples ask why, and Jesus says, no, this is for the work of God. And then he says, continuing verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, one of the seven I am's. When he said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. He went away and washed, and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Others were saying, no, but it's just like him. <laughs> he kept saying, I am the one. Now, I want you to read John 9 on your own and take a look at this wonderful storyline. But this man who's congenitally blind is given a new set of eyes. We have to see the creative work going on here. Jesus makes mud and applies it to his eyes. That's to take us back to the garden. When God formed man out of the Adam, out of the dirt of the ground. So we see Jesus on his hands and knees making a giant dirt man, Adam, breathing life into him. It was a creative act. Well, here we see that creative act, a congenitally blind man. Jesus spits, makes mud, puts it on his eyes. He comes back seeing. So Jesus didn't heal some eye disease. He created a new set of eyes. Now, as they inquire what happened to him, this man is just an object lesson. Remember what Jesus said. He's here so that we can see the work of God displayed in him. He responds to his inquirers, he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. I went, I washed, and I received my sight. They said, where is he? He says, I don't know. You have to see the comedy. He's never seen him. He was blind. <laughs> where? I don't know where he went. He just told me to go wash the mud off my eyes, and I came back and I'm seeing. Well, as the story unfolds, they bring him before the Pharisees because it's on the Sabbath. That's a bad thing for the Pharisees. You don't work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees start to grill him. And they want to know where this guy came from. Verse 16 of John 9. This man is not from God because he does not keep Sabbath. Others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And then they're fighting among themselves, which again is, is lovely humor. Verse 17. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Oh, what's this guy think? He says, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind. So you attack the messenger. You say, wait a minute, who, who is he? He must be a prophet. Well, no, you're wrong. You're blind. You don't know what you're talking about. And it continues to get more and more intense. 
they finally bring the guy's parents in to verify whether or not it was his son. His parents answer, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but now how he sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age. And you have to see again the humor, but there's also some fear going on here because if they acknowledge this was the son and they knew Jesus did this, then they're culpable in the violation of Sabbath law. And what they're fearful of is they'll be put out of the synagogue, meaning they'd be kicked out of the community. So a second time, they haul the guy in. They give him a, a work over again. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Why do they keep calling Jesus a sinner after all? Because he violated Sabbath. He, the blind man answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know is though I was blind now I can see. Great verse. Great verse. I, I don't know anything about this Jesus. I don't know if he's a sinner. And we put in parentheses, I've never seen the guy. <laughs> but what I do know is I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You got to love it. He said, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> He's growing quickly in his theological understandings. Well, they revile him and they threaten him. They say we're disciples of Moses and Moses was from God. We don't know where this guy's from. He responds in verse 30. Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from, but he opened my eyes. <laughs> it continues. It intensifies. Finally, they toss the guy out. Verse 34. They said, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Verse 35, listen carefully. Jesus heard that they put him out, finding him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, literally, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. Now stop for a minute. He's never seen the guy. The blind man was blind from birth. He's never seen anything in his life. Now he has all this visual data coming into his world, all these people hovering over him, the Pharisees challenging him, his parents sort of distancing themselves from him. And Jesus, verse 35, finds the blind man, unique in all scripture. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He's never seen him before. So he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus' response is marvelous. You've both seen him, and he is the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped. Jesus comments, for judgment, I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, the story is remarkable. It's so many layers. A creation miracle, a miracle that's indisputable, a miracle that the scribes and Pharisees can't acknowledge, a miracle that was done on Sabbath to them was something that was a violation that was sin to work on Sabbath. But what's often missed in this storyline is the miracle of sight itself. When Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world, this goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah, we're told that when Messiah comes, he'll do many things. But there was one thing only the Messiah could do, and that was give sight to the blind. You might say this was his most magnificent miracle, of course, second to being raised from the dead or raising people from the dead. 
But the importance of it to the Jew and the Pharisee was Messiah was the only one who could give the blind their sight. So if they for one moment are going to entertain that Jesus was Messiah, this is a showstopper. This blows their categories. They can't accept this. So they retreat and hide behind the threat, and they hide behind the idea, well, he violated Sabbath. I love this story for a lot of reasons. I love it because we see the Messiah in full display. We see a man who's nothing but an object lesson. If we go back to chapter 9, verse 2 at the beginning, remember Jesus said, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, the work of God was displayed in him. No one had ever gotten their sight back like this before. And so now a blind man is seeing, and that proves to pious Jews, this man's the Messiah. And here's this blind man who, by the way, we don't even know his name. And he's the one who's identified as the object lesson, and he believes in the Lord Jesus. I love this chapter for a lot of reasons, but it's kind of my story. Coming up in a very good religious home with very good parents who were honest, loving, religious people, in many respects, God-fearing people. I never heard the story accurately. I never heard the story well. I never embraced the person and work of Jesus Christ. So during all my hellion teenage years, when I finally was confronted with the gospel of Christ, I had this epiphany, if you will, and I understood I was blind, and now I see. My life changed. At 15 years of age, when I embraced who this Jesus was, I saw things differently. I saw them completely differently. And all I know is that I was blind, and now I can see. For those of you who might have come to Christ as children, it's kind of hard sometimes to quantify what your life was like before that. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's a joyful thing. But for those of us that come to Christ later in life, it's a remarkable testimony to understand I lived my life as a blind man. I didn't know what I didn't know. I couldn't see what I couldn't see. But once Christ encountered me, once I believed in Christ, I can see. I was blind spiritually, and I can see spiritually. I was dead spiritually, and I've been made alive spiritually. And that's my hope for you and for all of your friends and loved ones that you know that need to see because he came to give sight to the blind. This is Michael Easley in Context. If you'd like information on traveling to Israel with Michael in 2018 or 2019, send us an email at info at michaelincontext.com with the subject line, Israel. After all, it is God's will for your life to go to Israel.